0: Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 314 and part two of my conversation with St. Olaf College percussion instructor and concertizing percussionist Matt McClung. We'll get back to Matt shortly, but first up, Marching Mizzou-related stuff. This Saturday, we are hosting our upcoming Champion of Champions Marching Band Festival at Memorial Stadium on the campus of Mizzou. Fortunately, I am not the only person involved in organizing. That main job goes to our assistant director of bands, Dr. Christian Noon, and I help out as much as possible, along with our large ensembles coordinator, Brooke Danielson. So that is upcoming, as is our annual Homecoming Parade Band Competition the following week. So lots of work involved there. But speaking of Dr. Christian Noon, he and I, along with many others, completed the annual Columbia Roots and Blues Half Marathon this weekend. And both of us still have working limbs. It's very exciting. You can see pictures of that on my Facebook and Instagram pages. And I'll be speaking more about who I saw perform at the Roots & Blues Music Festival this weekend in this week's Rave. Stay tuned. But let's get back to our conversation with Matt McClung. Last week on Part 1, Matt talked about his job responsibilities at St. Olaf, getting connected in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, growing up near Chicago, his undergrad studying engineering, and doing some percussion on the side at the University of Cincinnati. This week in Part 2, we'll hear about Matt transitioning into studying percussion full time as a grad student at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music heading to Rice University in Texas to do his doctorate his 3 years as an orchestral percussionist in Hawaii his time at Texas A&M Corpus Christi and making the move to Minneapolis along with the usual close to our show so let's get to it we recorded this interview over Zoom on September 13th 2022 and it begins right now. What's the transition like for you to begin the masters and you have, you come from a place where you're okay. So you did a lot of AP stuff. So your schedule but may not have been as full, but now you go into the masters, which is like the extreme opposite of <laughs> the classwork version. And now all of a sudden you're there to play yeah what's
1: that like it's like amazing it well it was super fun it was it was nutty Mm -hmm. um the whole thing was weird and like one of the weird things was I had to you know like they'll they'll be nice to you and make certain allowances for you if you have a successful audition into the program Mm -hmm. and by they I mean the administration in the music building right so they're like, okay, this person does not, (laughs) we're used to accepting people into our graduate program who have undergraduate degrees from a music program of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I was not that. And they didn't quite know what to do with that. So they, you know, I met with some people and they were like, okay, you need to maybe get some tutoring in music history and in music theory. And so for theory, I, I've, you know, I asked them and they put me up, Put me with some graduate students, and I would you know they'd give me like, go uh you know four part harmony, don't put any chord tones in that don't belong in the chord and harmonize this melody uh, and so I would you know like try and figure out how to not triple the third or whatever you're supposed to do. and he, I did a little bit of that for music history, I had a good friend who was a musicology major who was a graduate student in that department. And he, we just went to a coffee shop for five hours and he had a little Walkman with all the little tapes, you know, that we used to listen to back in the day where you got, if you get the t- text, the accompanying document is like 12 cassette tapes that take you from Chant yeah. to like, I don't know, Pierrot or Steve Reich or something. Right. And Maybe. so he was it's like, a, I'm going to.
0: later ha- edition, yes, it would get to Steve Reich. It was probably right. getting to like you know, William Schumann or something
1: like that. Right. This was the nineties. So I think, you know, maybe, maybe maybe minimalism was just barely on the edge of there, but this guy was like, he was like, I'm not going to tell you anything. Once orchestra music starts, he's like, you've got enough of a background. You'll be able to figure it out. Mm -hmm. He was like, we're going to deal with medieval and Renaissance and a little bit of classical stuff. And we just sat there and he just funneled information into my head. We had headphones on and he was just like, This is how it works. This is where it started. Every now and then I would ask questions and sometimes he would answer them. And sometimes he would just go, you don't need to know that. They're going to test you on this. You tell them this. Like he just shoveled it into my head, but it was great because he was sort of born to do this. And it was uh, actually an engineering degree helps you learn in that way. In engineering school, you learn, you know, you learn a bunch of physical properties about like metals versus ceramics or whatever, but you learn how to problem solve and you learn how to take in a shitload of, sorry, am I hard to swear on your podcast? You take on a shitload of information in as, you know, as quickly as possible. And Mm -hmm. then you vomit it out. And especially like, I can just remember finals week, we'd be taking, you know, five, six, seven different classes. And so finals week, it's like, all right, I've got a differential equations final tomorrow at two o'clock. So from now until 2 o'clock tomorrow, I am differential equations person, and I'm just going to, you know, go over as much of this as I possibly can. You go to the final tomorrow at 2, you vomit out whatever you can remember about differential equations, yeah. and then you look at your schedule and you're like, okay, i have done with differential equations. Now I am chemistry man because… Oh, you're I like, <laughs> flush, flush it out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> flush it out. Right. Let's take in organic chemistry because yeah. that's a whole different thing. It's got yeah. nothing to do with differential equations. They do not overlap. <laughs> you know, get that, throw the differential equations text under your bed. Now this is my Bible. And for the next, you know, 22 hours, I'm going to suck in as much of organic chemistry as I possibly can. Yeah. Engineering school teaches you that.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And if you hang on long enough, you know, you get at least okay at that, of learning a lot of information in a short amount of time. So that's what I did with theory and history. Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of walked into the head of the theory history department's office Mm -hmm. and he was like what's going on and i was like i i need a piece of paper signed by you that says i know enough about theory and history that it's the equivalent of an undergraduate degree and i thought he was going to grill me but he was just like well what have you been doing and i said i you know i've taken i've studied privately with these people Mm -hmm. and he goes yeah okay and he he writes out the piece of paper nice and i walked downstairs to the you know somebody's office and i was like here i have this piece of paper and they were like okay and they stuck it in a file yeah. and then i just i in their eyes i had an undergraduate degree in music of course. welcome to the program yeah i was there to perform i i could stop writing equations mm-hmm. down off the board all day long and it was The whole time I'm in a room, literally, as I said, you know, copying Greek letters into my endless spiral bound notebook, Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, it must be so great to just be in a practice room for like six hours a day with a marimba and play scales and just let it flow out of you and it's beauty and people are interested in beauty and making things that are pleasing to, you know, you're making sounds that are meant to be pleasing and you try and... Like this, I just thought it must be heaven (laughs) compared to engineering school. That (laughs) music majors must be the happiest people on earth (laughs) Um, Ah, because because of all the fun stuff they get to do nonstop. I was a little misinformed, but (laughs) it has. I could spend all day talking about the wrong decisions I made in my life. But one of the things that worked out really well because I went to engineering school first is I. I have a lot of gratitude for what I do because I know, you know, I know what else people do for a living. I know, you know, there's lots worse existences out there. And I also, it's surprising to me every time something goes right in my career and I get to do something else exciting, you know, like I, you pick up the phone and you get like a cool, a cool project is offered to you and you think, geez, I'm not even qualified to do this. This is really exciting. Um, Every time something like that happens, I'm like, man, this is, this is awesome. This is going much better than I, I'm, the fact that I'm not eating out of a dumpster, Mm -hmm. I just can't believe how well this is going. And sometimes, you know, you know, the rooms where you're in, sometimes where you're surrounded by people who think that, They deserve much more than what they're getting. And they think that they should be getting what, you know, they look around and they see other people that are getting stuff and they they think that should be them. Or they're looking at their current situation, whether it's, you know, in an ensemble or at an institution. Mm -hmm. And they're like, they're not, they're not giving me enough. They're not, you know, I'm, I should be, I should be here. And like this stupid job is keeping me here. Yeah. And we all have moments like that. I'm not impervious to those kinds of thoughts of like professional jealousy or complaining about the administration, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That That's in me as much as it is in everybody else. But uh, I'm always so grateful that I get to do this at all. And it's just, it's yeah. still really fun for me to do. And engineering school, did it slow me down? Maybe. Right. But I wasn't a great pr- I've been paying for it ever since but I wasn't a great practicer. I didn't have a great work ethic when I was young. So who knows if I'd been a music major I'm I might have been a crappy music major. I was much more psyched about practicing after going to engineering school. Yeah. But yeah, it may have I don't know if it set me back um you know in terms of I should have been playing scales those 4 or 5 years or whatever. Right. Uh instead of uh, typing things into my TI-35 calculator, but it's worked out pretty well.
0: Well, when you get to the master's and you start working in your full end to the program, what are the lit- literature expectations that you're getting from your teachers about what they expect to see you doing over that
1: degree? It was pretty standard. And it's interesting to compare like the literature expectations there compared to where I went next, which was Shepherd School at Rice for my doctorate. Cincinnati Conservatory, to me, was a little bit more of a safe laboratory environment. You know, things were a little bit sort of pure there, and you were just focused on the music, and you were really sort of diving deep into what was going on. So, you know, I gave a master's recital, and I did, like, probably the Henza five scenes for the Snow Country, and I had played you know, up until that point, I played like Mirage and maybe Time and some other stuff, and um, it was very much a new music centered program. Mm. Obviously, the the teachers there were. Uh, it was a percussion ensemble, and they were not doing like you know arrangements of Tchaikovsky. Right. Yeah. These guys worked with John Cage. These guys, were, you know, were sort of on the cutting edge from the when they formed in the '60s and the the personnel had, you know, fluctuated somewhat, but, um, they were cutting edge new music guys. Yeah. And so you were, you know, very safe experimenting and doing stuff that like, uh, you weren't worried that like the audience wasn't going to respond well to your, to the fact that you were plucking needles off of a cactus or, you know, playing really hard to understand modern German room music that they, nobody was worried that that was going to be like a problem that you couldn't make necessarily. It was difficult to make a career out of that. Sure, It was just, we're going to focus on this and we're going to pick a piece to work on and we're going to, you know, be serious about it and take it apart. I didn't have quite the work ethic that maybe I should have. And I, you know, looking back, I probably, I of course could have done more, but that was sort of very valuable to me at the time was just, you know, super hyper-focus on... Like, one of the things I remember is you would... And it didn't... This was all I knew Percussion Ensemble was being at Cincinnati Conservatory. You go to a Percussion Ensemble concert, and there was never any sort of, like, percussion orchestra kind of stuff. It was all, you know, it was pretty hardcore. They weren't worried about curb appeal when it came to a lot of the music that was played. It was just not what they were focused on. And no one like got up and talked. No one ever got up and said, the next piece is a little unusual in the, fo- you know, you may notice that they're banging on wash tubs or this is, you know, you- like no one ever got up and spoke about the pieces. Hmm. And then I went other places and, you know, I started finding out that people would actually, any kind of new music situation, a lot of times it's just useful for somebody to get up and be like. Yeah. This is, you know, you may notice this or the composer was thinking about this, something where you, you can help the connection between the performers and the audience. That just wasn't, on, they were very sort of, they were kind of purist and severe about the whole thing mm-hmm. where, you know, they were just like this, we're going to offer it and it's okay. And they were totally, they were, first of all, they were incredible at what they did. Mm-hmm. They still are yeah, you know, yeah. just monsters at this stuff. It was okay if people, like, listened and got it or listened and didn't get it, you know, or walked away scratching their heads. That was an acceptable response to them. Sounds they like, had,
0: a, almost like a, they're like a, like Miles Davis quintet or
1: something like that. Just like, right. walk out. Exactly. Walk out. Did not, I don't know that they ever turned their backs on the audience. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I... I want to be clear that I no way am I like picking on the percussion group Cincinnati because I, I I worshiped, you know, know. like a lot of people who went there, I formed a trio, (laughs) a percussion trio because I was like, this seems like an awesome thing to do.
2: Yeah.
1: And we did. And the thing is they weren't, uh, you know, they, one of the, their hallmark pieces was the, they had a uh, collection of Chilean folk songs that they had arranged for, you know, three people on one marimba. And that's, that's tons of curb appeal. Everyone loves listening to those pieces they are incredible. I love going back and listening to those. They,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Um, it, you know, it's a masterclass in how to take a piece of folk music and translate it onto our instrument without, without being cheap, without being, you know, it was just these little pieces were pristine gems. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they, you know, it was just a different vibe. And then I went to rice and it was much more of a, you know, Richard Brown was like, you know, he was a fine musician. He'd subbed, played a lot with like New York Phil and Metropolitan. I mean, he was a very highly trained classical musician, but he was also, he had a big band. He was the percussionist for Ann Margaret, you know, tour. Um, he was like a mover and shaker in the local scene down in Houston. Yeah. And he was a little bit more of a, like a coach. You know what I mean? He was like, all right, we're going to get out there. We're going to, you know, it was more like that. It, was much he was much less professorial so the contrast between those two programs when i went down to rice and you know it was first of all it was an orchestral based program i mean it was i was kind of there to to learn how to take an orchestra audition
0: yeah yeah was that Um, okay so hold on so when you go there you you go there because like that's what you think the next step is for you is to get into an
1: orchestra once I graduated with a master's, yeah. I had one engineering degree and one music degree, and I did not know what I was going to do okay. at that point. I did not have a plan. I had two degrees, mm-hmm. no plan. Yeah, okay. I, wasn't, I I didn't feel like I was good enough to play music professionally. I was three years out of the engineering game, and I had no desire to get back in. Yeah, yeah. It was the late 90s. And that was sort of, it was kind of cool to wander around and not know what you were going to do at that time. You know what I mean? There was a little bit of, of yeah. that vibe. And I actually, you know, I looked at a bunch of different options and I wound up moving to Austin because, like, my generation seemed to think of Austin as a cool place to wander around with no job and sort of figure out your life. Mm-hmm. It turns out I'm not the kind of person who can just sort of move to a weird town and have a quirky existence and not know what to do with my life. I yeah. thought I would try doing that. It lasted a few months. Mm-hmm. And I was like I this is, I'm not I'm not a wanderer. I need a you know I, I got to figure something out. I need to make a plan and
2: yeah.
1: I you know I remember distinctly a conversation with uh my friend uh who was still I guess he was still in Cincinnati at the time, Doug Perkins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking on the phone and I'm in Austin and, you know, he, he knew me, we were in school together. Uh, he had a certain amount of respect for me as a musician and he did not understand why I went off to just do nothing in Austin. And at some point he just boiled over in frustration In frustration, and he, you know, he was like, what the hell are you doing? Look, you know, I know some people who are dumber than you that have jobs Get back here, figure something out. You have to be a musician. Yeah. I, you know, just kind of looked around and I thought, you know, Doug's, Doug's probably right. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, okay, the, maybe the next step is I need to get a doctorate because I only have two years of formal musical training, really. Yeah. And I think that's probably not enough. There's no way for me to practice living in my grubby little apartment. I did not own timpani. I did not, I didn't, you know... Maybe I owned a drum set snare drum and uh I owned a Windsor 2 Marimba, which I I'm ride or die for the Windsor II. I think that's a fine instrument, but not there was just no way for me to prepare a doctoral audition with you know what I had in Austin. So I moved back to Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I begged my way. Back into the good graces of the percussion department at CCM and they said, yes, you can come and practice here while you're working on your, you know, t- I wasn't a student there, but they were very graceful about that and let me, you know, I would try and come in and practice at night. Yeah. I, I had a I I got a, like a day job for a temp agency and then would come in at night and practice as much as I could. Yeah. um, And the first, so I wound up spending two years in Cincinnati mm-hmm. doing this. Um, more or less. And the first year I got, I tried to get ready um, very quickly. I had just a couple of months, so I would have moved back, I don't know, in uh, November, maybe. And graduate school auditions were in February. Yeah, yeah. And so I quickly tried to put something together. And, you know, Doug Perkins, the person I had this conversation with, this life-altering phone conversation with. Yeah he was studying at Yale with Bob Vanceyce and he was like, maybe you should come you know, tr- study with Bob Vanceyce. He seems to be like a pretty good teacher. Yeah, yeah. So I wound up taking auditions at Peabody and Yale that year. Mm. Wasn't greatly prepared to do that. And, um, you know, I went and did both the auditions and, you know, he walked me around campus at Yale after my audition and he was like, you're qualified to come to Yale. You're good enough to get into the studio. We just got to figure out if we have space for you. Yeah. And then he just, he took uh, Eduardo that year and Todd. Yeah. Mm, okay. And I think that may have been it. I don't know. Um, it's
0: a small program. That would make sense if that was it,
1: it. Right. And I was, I was like, I'd take those two guys. I mean, those guys are <laughs> yeah, awesome. Absolutely. i followed <laughs> their careers. That makes sense to me.
2: Yeah.
1: And maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe he gave that same speech to 30 other kids. I have no idea. But sure. my, my understanding of Bob VanSyze is he doesn't, he wasn't super interested in being outrageously uh, polite to every single, you know, like I think he kind of, he has a reputation for telling, telling things the way they are, I guess. So yes. anyway, doesn't matter. I auditioned for Yale and Peabody. I got in neither place.
0: He's a, he's so, a presence, like uh, that's what that's how Todd described. It. He's like he's a presence. Yeah, you know you know when
1: you're in the presence of Bob Van. Oh yes, yeah. I agree with that 100. <laughs> you know, at that time, you know, I got the I got my little thin envelopes from Yale and Peabody, and I was like, okay, well, this plan maybe I can look at it as this failed spectacularly, or I can look at it as maybe working a full-time job and trying to practice for a couple of months and then get into a world-class doctoral program is not you know not the best way to go about this. So I took another I was like I'm going to take another round next year. Okay? I'm going to remain in my holding pattern. And I I was still working um you know sort of like a temporary kind of office stuff and I went to my masters and I just basically said I'm trying to do this other thing so I want my hours to be a little bit more flexible
2: yeah. and
1: they, they allowed me to do that. I spent more time practicing and then I cast a wider net and auditioned at six different graduate schools that time. So I did Rice and UT University of Illinois, Cincinnati conservatory, um, Hart school of music. And then the school that Eduardo wound up teaching at was at SUNY Stony Brook. Stony Brook. Yeah. Yep. So those were my six. Yeah. And I felt like I did a better job of preparing, you know, the auditions. And then I, I got into all six mm. and I, you know, all six programs were really great and had a lot going for them. Yeah. And I wound up going to Rice, I think, because it was so different
2: mm-hmm.
1: than CCM, you know, talking to Richard Brown is, is the opposite of talking to my very sort of Zen,
2: yes.
1: super hyper focused, gentle um, teacher at CCM. Richard Brown was like, we're going to, we're going to fix it. You know, I, I want you to come here. I see what's going on with your technique. You're not ready to take auditions yet, but I can fix you. I can help you with all that. If you come here, we're going to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was the decision-making process. And I did, you know, I sort of agonized over figuring out which of the six schools and mm-hmm. I wound up going to Rice and I was really happy there. It was, it was, uh, you know, super fun program and surrounded by great musicians and what people was like? Really- did you have an assistantship? At that time, and I don't know if this continues, they didn't theoretically have assistantships. They Their point was that they had a, it was a small school, and everybody who went to the school studied with like the main teacher. You weren't going to get sloughed off on some graduate student. Sure. That was their thing. They wound up giving me a full ride and money on top of that, and part of my duties were... I, you know, I think I helped out a little bit in terms of like maybe a couple of studio classes. And then I taught a music for uh, young children class, which was sort of like a eurythmics class Mm, for little kids. They had sort of, it wasn't quite, um, well, by now I think they're just calling it like the prep, you know, like the preparatory division where they uh, have programs, private lessons, and then group classes for uh, kids in the area. And that was the first you know I helped kind of start that program uh which became much much bigger and fairly successful having very little to do with me but I was lucky enough to they paired me with someone who was a really great music teacher Rachel Buckman who um you know was a performer and a teacher of uh you know she would run around and teach at different music schools and um she was just, but she knew exactly how to deal with kids and I did not Mm-hmm. and it was kind of tagged on at the end. They were like, by the way, you're going to teach this little music and movement class to kids. Yeah. Welcome to Rice. And I was like, okay, just so you know, I'm, I don't know how to do that. And they said, go follow this woman around yeah. as she you know, teaches at different schools and sit in with her and talk to her and figure out what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And so I wound up doing that and learned a lot. And at the time, I was just like, I'm doing this. I don't care about this. I'm doing it because Rice tells me I have to do it. Yeah, but I wound up, first of all, really enjoying working with little kids like that, and then I wound up doing a ton of like As many of us, you know, surprise, this is a certain amount of your career is like you know, doing young persons concerts and uh, you know all sorts of uh, these activities that are you never thought you were going to do and you never learned in a how to do in a conservatory environment usually. But I wound up, you know, teaching. Music to little kids in a lot of different ways over the course of my career, and that's how it started. But that was my sort of assistantship. Mostly, they you know I just went and practiced poor game best until midnight.
0: Is there a finishing document? Well, how does that? How, what's the end of that degree?
1: Officially, it's called a doctoral document. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone just calls it the dissertation. Um, something called a presser award or presser grant i guess it's an award um the presser you know the theater or presser uh music publishing corporation yeah. has um a charitable arm and they they give out these awards to at that time i don't know there were 12 or 16 different conservatories mm-hmm. around the country and each conservatory could nominate one graduate student to get a presser award and once you were nominated All you had to do was come up with a reasonable proposal, and they sort of guided you through that process, but they were only entertaining one proposal from each of the 16 schools, and they consistently awarded 16 of these things. So basically, once the school nominated you, you were in, and I had no idea. I'd never heard of this thing, and they gave it to me. Nice. Probably because Richard Brown went into a meeting full of professors and they were like, we got to figure out who we're going to nominate for a presser award. And Richard Brown stood up and said, now, I got your guy. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, maybe just nobody else had enough coffee to right. resist. I mean, I don't know how it worked out. But anyway, the, like the assistant dean or somebody just pulled me into an office and said, you're going to get this award. You're going to get, I don't know, thousands of dollars to go do something over the summer. Mm. And you got to come up with a proposal. My favorite teacher was a music history teacher at the time. And I just kind of slumped into her office. And I was like, you're never going to believe what just happened to me. And she was like, okay, don't get used to this. This is never going to happen again. There's a bunch of people offering you money to do what you want. So we're going to figure this out because we want to get it right. And let's, you know, this is going to be a memorable experience for you. And we got to figure out what you really want to do. Yeah. And it had to be travel oriented. Like you had to go someplace else to do it. Um, And so I wound up going to Ghana Mm
2: -hmm.
1: for two months in the summer of 2002 and studying for a total of eight weeks. So I was in a tiny Awe village uh, called Mm. Kopiya for five weeks. And then the last three weeks... I studied with uh, Kakrabalobi, who is um, like a Gilles master. Yeah, he was uh, one of Valerie Naranjo's teachers.
2: Awesome.
1: He was really nice to me, and I can't remember. Dane teaches at uh, Richardson. Shoot. Yes, Dane Richardson. I but reached out to a bunch right? of people when I when I, I found Lawrence, out. That's right, Appleton. Yeah, He's, yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, I cast a wide net and just sent out emails to everybody I knew and said, I think i want to go to Africa. Does anybody know anybody who's had any experience there? And a lot of people were very kind with their time and expertise and got back to me. And one of those people was Dane Richardson. He yeah. never met me. He had no reason to help me. And he was like, you know, I just explained, I was like, I got this much money. I yeah. got this much time over the summer. And he was like, here's what you should do. Go to Ghana because they speak English.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and they're used to, you know there there's a system there set up so you won't have to like backpack through the forest somewhere and come upon some little village and then sit outside some guys like they they know what to do with a westerner who shows up and wants to study. So you won't have to, you know, completely go off grid. Sure. Yeah. And so he basically helped me design this program. And I spent five weeks studying uh Away drumming and three weeks uh studying with Kukrabalobi. Um you know, just sitting across from him and he'd play his Gilles and I'd play my Gilles Mm -hmm. that he made for me. And he'd go and I'd go, what what was the second thing? What what was the, and, you know, one half measure at a time, he taught me as much rep as he could in three weeks. So anyway, that became my doctoral document.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, I took as many notes as I could. I made recordings while I was there. Yeah. And, you know, when I came back, I just kind of, I, I wrote it up. And now I have a doctorate degree. The first doctorate in percussion from Rice Universe. Really? Yeah. Do you want my autograph? I'm pretty, I'm a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Obviously, I'll we'll, we'll put your signature on the, on the show page or something like that. Yeah. I'll do it. It's quite a thing. They had just established a doctoral program like right before you got there, and did you know that, yeah. or was that a just that it happened that you were one of the first
1: I can't remember how i mean it wasn't like a selling point in the brochure sure. yeah I think someone else had um made an either made an attempt or suggested that they were going to come and do a doctoral program and other I'm sure other studios had had doctoral students at Rice. So they'd probably gotten, you know, a pianist and an oboist and a violinist at some point. Yeah. And so the framework was more or less there. It was just that no one had made it through the program as a percussionist. I think one, like I said, one person had either tried or said they were going to try. So they set up more or less what the, they figured the requirements ought to be for that degree. And then that, that person either didn't finish or didn't even start. And so when I was there, he was like, yeah, doctoral, no problem. <clears throat> Nobody stressed the whole, like, you're going to invent this as you go along. But it, yeah. you know, it all worked out. It wasn't super problematic and they were very reasonable. That was another sort of cultural difference between going to a state school and in Cincinnati, where you're dealing with a giant mechanism of, you know, a 30, there like 40,000 students at that place. Right. And then the Shepherd School is just this little family, and they're like, yeah, just go down and talk to Jeanette in this office, and uh, she'll hook you up. Yeah. And it was talking to reasonable people, whereas with a massive bureaucracy at a huge school, sometimes you're just you're talking to a system.
0: Yeah. Oh, Rice is what, 5,000 students? It's not that big, right?
1: It was 4,000, I think, at the time I was there. Yeah, it was tiny. Yeah. And I walked into, you know, the music department office, and they were like, oh, Matt, yes, we've been expecting you. <laughs> Right. What do you what like that? Never <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go to a state school and see who's expecting you. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you just sit in the corner with all the other mats and we'll. Right. Uh, we'll,
1: yeah. Do you have the farm? Well, I wasn't, I didn't, I don't see your name on the list. You know, like there's Yeah. none of that really happened at rice. They were just like, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Hi, come on yeah. in. Nice.
0: Uh, what happens after you finish? Are you, do, is that, uh, Corpus
1: Christi. Um, after so, I finished my classwork in two years, mm-hmm. and at that point, I just had, um, you know, the the other stuff to f- like right. finish up the recital or two, my dissertation to complete, uh, the the exams, the orals, the comps, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the during that summer, uh, when I just before I went to Ghana the opportunity came up to do a one year in the percussion section of the Honolulu symphony.
2: Mm.
1: Once again, it was, I didn't like, I didn't seek this out. It just sort of dropped in my lap because, you know, Riley Francis was the acting principal percussionist of the Honolulu symphony at that time. They needed to bring in somebody for a season. Riley had gone to Rice. He contacted Richard Brown. He said, is there anyone you could send me that wouldn't be like a total embarrassment and could you know play for a year in the section? Yeah. Richard Brown said, nope, I don't know a single student of mine who could possibly go down and do that. And then they went back and forth and eventually my name popped up. So I came back from Africa and with a very quick turnaround, went to play a one year in the Honolulu Symphony, which turned into two one years, which turned into three one years. So... <laughs> I wound up finishing my degree remotely, Mm. like flying back and forth between Houston and Honolulu to do all that stuff, to do the recital and do the comps and all that. Wow. So after three years in Honolulu, everyone I was subbing for kind of came back Mm -hmm. and there was no more, you know, the positions had disappeared. Uh, So I went back to Texas and I figured I could, you know, Texas is a place where you can go and like, teach at high schools and teach, you know, sure. parad- if you're willing to teach paradiddles to uh 14 year olds, you you can pick up, you know, 60, 70 students if you yeah. want to. Yeah. So I just figured out well, I would do that because I didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. Um and I did, you know, I was connected a little bit to the scene there and could, you know, pick up a few gigs on the side. And uh so I wound up doing that. And I was there, i think one year, and then wound up uh teaching uh adjunct at texas a and m university in college station, like the big
2: a and m oh, yeah mm-hmm.
1: uh which doesn't have a huge music program but was a you know it's it was great to teach at a school that everybody at least knows you know everybody's heard of that school yeah, yeah. um so I went and taught music history and music theory and music appreciation. Um, and then the Corpus job came up suddenly because the teacher there left over the summer mm-hmm. as kind of a little bit of a surprise. And so I was hired there on a one year with mm-hmm. the possibility of, you know, being installed. So I did the one year and I did the thing that a lot of us have done, which is you have your job for one year and they do a full search right. for, the person to do your job while you're sitting there and Mm -hmm. they bring in some other qualified candidates who come and teach your kids and run your ensembles and you have to like, just go home and sit in your apartment. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they're like, just try and stay away. Yeah. Yeah. Thursday between 9am and Friday afternoon. That'd be great. Yeah. 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 So I did that, but you know, I, I brought donuts to all the meetings that whole year. (laughs) Nice. Every faculty meeting I was like, Hey guys, I'd, I did some baking. I made these brownies as anybody. So that's how you win the job, kids, if you're wondering how that happens. Food. Get your toe in the door and then you just bake everybody brownies until they have no choice but to hire you. Yeah, yeah.
0: That makes sense. I mean, maybe, you know, be good at what you do, but that's secondary. We can, we can work on that. Yeah. I
1: mean, that's, that's all fine, but there's a bunch of people who, like,
0: yeah, we can it's ridiculous
1: play. how many, how many, like, you know, 28 year olds are running around there who can play uh, velocities at the drop of a hat. Right, like let's face it, you know, if I fall down dead tomorrow, somebody's going to come in and pick up my marimba sticks and be able to make this work. But is yeah. that guy going to bring donuts? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see what you I see. What you mean there? Did you like living in Hawaii? Oh yeah. Oh God, yeah. I'm surprised because every now and then you run across somebody who doesn't. Um, but. Yeah. For the most part, it's, it's Hawaii. I'd never been to Hawaii before Mm. I moved there. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. It was beautiful. I mean, everything's a little bit more expensive and you're kind of removed. I was removed. I felt a little removed from my family, Sure, but yeah, it was, it was gorgeous. It was lovely.
0: It was Hawaii. Right. Oh, no, I, I get that.
1: I, when I got there, I was, Riley was supposed to pick me up from the airport. We'd never met. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just there with all my luggage yeah, yeah. and he he got the, something got like mixed up or something. So he wasn't right there. So I was just kind of sitting, you know, among the flowers and giant palm trees and there's, you know, two cans like, you know, yeah, yeah. like, Um, and I happened to get off of a plane at the same time where another plane full of beauty pageant uh, entrance Pageants or something. Yeah. Right. So there were all these, beautiful women with sashes mm-hmm. with the names of states yeah. printed on them. Then they were also waiting for the ride. And I'm just sitting here, you know, and it's like 73 and sunny with a cool breeze. And I'm surrounded by giant plants with huge, yeah. colorful flowers. You're and single. You're like, <laughs> yeah, I'm single and there's all these like beauty pageant competitors around yeah. me. And I'm just like, this is, this must, this must be what life is like every day in Hawaii. I guess this is just how it goes here. Yeah. yeah no I loved it it was I mean I didn't I'm not a surfer I tried it once it was fun but I'm like I wasn't you know somebody who wound up changing his lifestyle to Mm -hmm. accommodate that necessarily yeah yeah. but yeah there's there's so much beauty there and um my god it was it was it was great it's probably one of the best for practicing because you know I didn't have a ton of money but you don't have to have a like all the beaches are free yeah yeah right and it's beautiful weather all year round. And mm-hmm. yeah. And I like, I really enjoyed playing in that orchestra and they were great people. They were great colleagues. And I made some lifelong friends there. Yeah. Um, you know, I wish that orchestra had, you know, better support. A lot of orchestras, you know, they, they've they had their ups and downs. Yeah. My heart goes out to so many of those players who like went there Moved there, thought they were getting a full-time job. You know, you do the work, you you work your butt off in conservatory, you take these auditions, you yeah. you finally get a position and you think, okay, I, I got it, I'm safe. Yeah, yeah. And then the floor crumbles underneath your feet. It's Is, is that an orchestra no longer in existence? I think they are back. I think for a while they were the Honolulu Symphony, and they, they had a history before of being the Hawaii Symphony, which is sort of what came in place of the Honolulu Symphony when the Honolulu Symphony had like a lockout in the 80s or the 90s or something. Yeah, And I think like when I was there, things were starting to look like they were going to get worse coming up. And I think my second or third year there, everyone had to take like a 20% pay cut or something oh. from a level that was not super high to begin with. And I think, you know, I know that there are it still exists in some form and I can't remember if it's the Hawaii symphony or the Honolulu symphony. I'm, I'm really sorry to all my friends and colleagues who were still down there. i yeah. I've, I've um, lost track a little bit, but um, yeah, there's still a functioning orchestra down there, but I don't think it's, I, my guess is it's not as full time as, it was about 30 weeks when I was down there. Yeah. Which was enough. Um, but I think reduced from what they, what they were in their heyday, what mm-hmm. they had been. Yeah.
0: I'm curious, like, when they would be like, uh, we need you to stay another year.
1: And would you be like, oh, okay, let me think about it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I had nothing else going on. I mean, I took a couple auditions while I was there. I auditioned for Detroit. I auditioned for Houston Symphony. And I was, you know, I was making semis, but not finals. And um, the third one year was an audition that I had to, um, because it was a different position.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, So my position was going away. I was the assistant principal percussionist and uh, Riley was the acting principal. So my third year there, they had an audition for principal and Eric Shin won that audition.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I took it, Riley took it, Eric Shin came in, you know, that guy's a monster and he walked away with it. And that's how that goes. Um, But they also, in addition to taking the principal audition which I didn't win. I, there was also an audition for a one year because, uh, Steve Dinian, who was section percussion associate principal timpanist, he was taking a one year leave. Mm. And so I auditioned for both. And so didn't get principal, but got the one year. And so stayed like one final year. But again, I didn't, I didn't have anything else going on. So I was happy. Yeah, I was thrilled. It was really, it was fun. I don't think it would have been right for me to stay there forever. That sure. wouldn't have necessarily been the very best. By three years—it's a good three years. It was—that was—you know—in your late twenties, early thirties, spending three years in in Honolulu, that worked out just great for me.
0: <laughs> it, it is interesting, though, because of you mentioning the financial aspect. Honolulu is pop like rel, is pretty well populated, but is the rest of the the rest of the area is not right? Or is it like is it just this one? I'm just curious how what's kind of happened there.
1: So Honolulu is the big, you know, by far the most populous city in the state of Hawaii yeah. and the it's on the island of Oahu, which is by far the most populous Island in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's at the time, maybe there were like 800,000 people in Honolulu and 1.2 million in, on Oahu. I mean, I, I may be confusing those numbers, but something like that. And then there was another few hundred thousand or less uh, if you add in the population of, you know, Kauai and Maui and the Big Island and Molokai and whatever. You know, one of the things you need to support an orchestra like that is a a room full of millionaires. And the state of Hawaii has got plenty of millionaires Mm -hmm. living there not necessarily because that's where they became millionaires. They're they're you know it's yeah. Oprah's got a place in Maui. Oprah didn't get famous and rich in Maui, but if I had Oprah money I'd have a house in Maui. A lot of the super rich people are kind of there on vacation. Sure. So they're there and they own a lot of the really fancy, you know, places to live, but they're not necessarily in residence all year round. And then You know, the other sort of thing is that you don't necessarily think of orchestral music when you think of culture in Hawaii, because it's got this very specific kind of other vibe going on. It's got this, you know, long, beautiful tradition of its own, you know, there's Hawaiian music and food and like all these, you know, the great, you can go to a luau and see all these wonderful, you know, Tahitian inspired, you don't think of necessarily... Beethoven Mozart, when you're thinking of, let's go, let's go listen to some music while we're in Hawaii. Right. That's not necessarily what everybody thinks of. I mean, the orchestra's got a long, proud tradition. A lot of amazing players have come through there. It's a very high level product, I'm sure still to this day. Yeah. yeah. Um, But it just wasn't necessarily valued in the same way, Mm -hmm. you know, as what you would think of when you think of Hawaiian culture.
0: Yeah, I got you. What was your favorite food to eat there?
1: Ooh. So if you go to the North Shore, there's like these cool little places where you can get like a fresh fish sandwich or you can get like freshly grilled shrimp. Mm. Uncontroversially, seafood is amazing. If you can find the right places to get seafood in Hawaii, that's super fun. Um, what else? Yeah. I mean, of course the pineapples. Yeah. Get a good, of uh, uh, mangoes were great there. You know, there's a certain amount of produce that's kind of, um, from around there. That's fantastic to get.
2: Yeah. Oh, I...
0: <laughs> I'm going to jump ahead to your, the, to, um, Corpus Christi and I'm curious, you know, you, you'd been there for as long as you were, what was it like to, to decide to leave? Because that seems, I mean, you kind of, you alluded to this early in, in our conversation, but I'm, if you could talk a little bit more about that, because, because you, you walk you walk away because for, you know, for, for personal reason. I mean, because you want to actually live with your wife. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what, I mean, how, how far or how far before you leave, are you thinking, I don't like if we're going to do this like if you and I are going to be together we have to find somewhere to go or how, what's if you don't mind talking about those conversations
1: no not at all and I you know honestly I I had never been in a position like that before and I knew people of course we all did who had been you know have as musicians you're with somebody and they get a job somewhere and that's not where you have a job and you got to figure out what you're going to do and some people make it work by living in different cities and visiting a lot and um, some people just decide it's not going to work and they go their separate ways. And some people do what I did, which is they leave their job and go somewhere else. So there were some factors involved. One of one, one of the factors was that this was the perfect job for Maureen being in the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. There was a certain amount of structure and stability with her being in an orchestra that, you know, performs in the Twin Cities. I don't know, whatever it is, 40 weeks a year or 42. Um, but combined with the nimbleness of a chamber group that she was used to having been a string quartet player. So she loved the work. She loved the people. There are great people in this orchestra. Many of them she knew from earlier in her career. Many of them she went to Curtis with. They valued her and she valued them. And it was a great musical fit for her. Yeah. And she's like, I'm pretty good percussionist. I feel good about, you know, what I do, but she's a a, a talented violinist on a completely different level. Mm. And she, uh, you know, it's a, just a massive part of her life. And she's, I'm less particular about what I do. I want to be useful and I want to have fun and good, rewarding musical experiences. And same with my teaching experiences. But those could take any number of forms. And I wasn't too precious about, I mean, as you can tell by talking, talking through a lot of these decisions, a lot of them just kind of dropped in my lap and I went, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I'm going to try that. Yeah. Right. Or I don't know, let's just, you know, let's, let's try this and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't been great about the, you know, overall architecture of my own career. And there's probably a few reasons for that, but one of them is that I'm just, I'm, I feel lucky to be able to do anything in this field.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if it's mostly teaching, if it's mostly performing, if it's, teaching kids if it's you know being an engineer and playing in a community band on weekends most of that is pretty good for me but for her i could just tell that this was the job whereas if you could imagine her you know a concert like a violinist moving to corpus christi like there's no like the nearest big orchestra i guess that she would want to play in would be houston symphony yeah would probably be that would be maybe a step for her Sure. That she was maybe willing to look at, but that's three and a half hours away. It's still not, you know, us being in the same place. And right. Also, I'm from the Midwest mm-hmm. and my parents are getting older. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people of our rough yeah. age group slash generation are going through a lot of this where, you know, my, it was just me and my sister and my sister is still there in Crystal Lake. Yeah. and she's dealing with both my parents and their their health stuff and um my parents are divorced and re- remarried and they're both um near crystal lake or in crystal lake and um their spouses also have like health stuff going on and you know i've just watched my sister kind of get emotionally and physically exhausted dealing with all this stuff and at some point i was like i got to i have to contribute i was very i left the state when i was 17 and I haven't lived, you know, in Illinois since. Yeah. And I'm 49 now. And I, it was always on my horizon that I needed to get back to the Midwest, hmm. um, to be closer to my family. You know, my sister's there with her kids and their families, and
2: yeah,
1: um, my parents. So that was a draw already. When I got my job in Corpus Christi, I just I felt a, such a huge sigh of relief because. It was a scary step to leave behind engineering, which was basically guaranteed work. There was no way I was going to be unemployed. Right. There was a great possibility that I was going to be unemployed as a musician, as it is for, you know, so many of us. You know, the fact that I I felt like I got on base, you know, when I made it to A&M Corpus Christi. I I got my job and I was like, as long as I don't run anywhere, I'm safe. They can't tag me out. I've got my, you know... And this I was able be, this to This could be
0: it. This is where this could be where I could stay here the rest of my career.
1: Exactly. So. Yeah. Um. And especially when I got, you know, I, I play operas in the summer at Glimmerglass, which is in Cooperstown, New York.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: And I think it was 10 years ago, I won that audition. Mm-hmm. And that's like, a, like 10, 11 weeks of the summer in upstate New York. And at that point, I was still, you know, I was in Corpus for a couple of years and I got that gig and I thought, this is it. I'm spending nine months of the year in Texas. And then when it gets crappy and hot and shitty, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I'm going to leave and go to upstate New York where it's beautiful all summer. Right. And I was like, that's my last audition. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm good. I got my job for the year. I got my job for the summer. Yeah. They're in two different places. You know, I get to avoid winter. I, uh, yeah, was, yeah, right.
0: I get it. Yeah. I did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I
1: was relieved. And so there was a little bit of, you know, just because I, I always want to work. I always want to feel useful. I always want to be able to support myself. And so, yeah, leaving the job, there was a little bit of that, um, in my head of like, oh, I, you know, I got this job and now I, I, and I'm not, I'm not going to another job. I'm going to a certain amount of uncertainty.
2: yeah
1: You can't go through life making decisions based on fear, you know, is what, I wound up deciding and I talked to Maureen about it and, you know, she was, I, I had originally thought like, maybe we'll get married and then, um, I'll move to, and that's what wound up happening more or less. But we, you know, I was thinking maybe I'll like look harder for a job and see if I can get something close to where you are. And at some point she's like, you know, if you're thinking of maybe starting a freelance career in the twin cities, she's like, I don't, I don't know that it's going to get easier the older you get. (laughs) Yeah, And I was like, you know what? You're right. That's exactly right. If I'm going to do it, I I could wait forever to see if like something super safe, a safe option appears, Mm -hmm. or I could just do it and hope things work out.
0: Well, and you have the benefit of your wife, of you very much you and your wife very clearly support each other and want the best for each other. And you at least know one of us is solid. Yes. And that makes it a huge difference.
1: Yes, it does. It's a big, uh, cushion. Yeah. You know, no matter how dismally <laughs> it works out and sure. there was no reason to think it would be dismal. I mean, it's, sure it's worked out. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, it's worked out great. I mean, I love playing with these orchestras and saying Olaf is a great, Music, You know, it's probably the top music program in Minnesota, not to besmirch any other music programs in Minnesota, but it's very, you know, I landed in a great place and have been able to do some great stuff. But I knew, I knew that worst case scenario, I was going to, you know, my wife was going to support me until things worked out. And she probably knew, you know, she said, like, it doesn't matter what you do. It's totally fine. But she knew I wasn't going to, like, smoke weed and play video games on the couch. like. I, I'm not built that way. There was no way I was going to do nothing and just sort of, you know, be supported by my wife. I was going to try really hard to do something useful. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's scary. It, it reminds me of leaving engineering behind where it was just, it was a bit of a leap. And I'm not, I don't think of myself as a particularly brave person. <laughs> I'm much more comfortable, you know, if I have a safe next Oops. step. Yeah. But a couple of times I, I took a leap, and it's it's always worked out so far.
0: Yeah. All right, Matt. I f- finish out with random ask questions.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Yes. All right, blame on me.
0: All right, first question: What's an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under
1: your skin or drives you the most nuts? Maybe the jock mentality. This is a broad, okay, topic, but you know what I mean the certain amount of like, and some of this you can associate with the marching culture Mm -hmm. with the drum corps culture, which I was, you know, I wasn't necessarily raised in, but got a a big education on when I was in Texas. But, and I recognized very quickly, there's a lot of positives coming out of the drum corps culture. You get students who are willing to work and who can accept criticism and are willing to be a part of a team and, you know, to a large extent, don't always need to be the star of the show. And there's, you know, there are good things that come out of programs like that, but there is a certain amount of feeling sometimes where we're treating it like a sport, Mm -hmm. like something, like a physical activity to be excelled at. Yeah. Um, And sometimes that can overshadow the art. Yeah. And I had a very artistic upbringing when it came to being in Cincinnati and, you know, art was you know a lofty goal that we were all trying to achieve and then you know you run into there's just so many people who are well how fast can you do this and how you know amazing is it when they do that with one hand and the and i totally respect all that stuff and i look at you know i'm dazzled by all the amazing technical achievements that you know many of my colleagues can make that you know i'd love to be able to do that that's awesome yeah yeah right but at some point, it sometimes it shifts into becoming the goal, right? And I get nervous about that. Maybe that's a pet peeve. Sure.
0: Have you ever heard the term brocussion?
1: No, that's a great term. That's an yes. instantly memorable term, brocussion. Oh, Alexis,
0: Alexis C. Lamb.
1: You can credit
0: credit Alexis for this. Um, but that's this was. Um, I can't remember her pronouns. I, I feel bad if it's she or they, but I remember when we had this discussion about it and Alexis said, and I knew exactly what Alexis was getting at. You you would go to like PASIC and you'd go to um, like maybe a new music or, or some performance. And it would just be like 30 second notes for 20 minutes. And like, I, that was the, like that was the piece just like loud yeah. and just like about a bunch of jumping, I was like, "Oh, all hits and just all that stuff." And Lexus was not having it. And I was like, "I, I, I see what you mean."
1: Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah. So I don't know if that was if that's like a related point for you. And that totally, totally, and it's like I, you know, there are great pieces that are all thirty second notes and are invigorating and in loud and fast, and you know. I won't list them but we all know like the the list of percussion ensemble pieces that are like that and you know solo pieces and whatever. Yeah, yeah. That it's just like
2: and
1: I I I too get excited when I hear that stuff. But yeah, brocussion it gets a little it's it a little ooh, there's something there that I would like to try and soften. Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: And I t- I you know when when I moved back to Texas, part of my job, you know, teaching at different teaching private lessons at different high schools was getting them through, you know, regional and area and into state. Uh, Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd been told over and over again, like you're, you you can not miss a note. You have to play everything 20 clicks faster than it's marked blah, blah, blah. There's all these rules about what you got to do to get to state. And I told all these students I had, I, I said, I don't know how to teach you in that way. Like, I'm not the right person to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I said, I'm going to teach you to play these pieces as musically and as beautifully as we can put together. Yeah. And we're going to let the chips fall where they may. And frankly, I was pleasantly surprised. They all did great. Mm-hmm. Like they, they were scored very highly considering I wasn't making them play it faster than marked. I wasn't insistent that they go and play 30 second notes all day long. And like, I did not stress that. And I feel a little bit of that mythology is kind of bullshit. Right. Like it's not really true. And it's the same, by the way, for like orchestral auditions. There's so many people out there who are convinced, who've been told that, you know, if you miss one note, you're out, you go home. 99 people go home, one person gets a job and it's the person who misses zero notes. Right. And that's, that's not true. And if if it were true, I never would have you know, gotten anywhere in orchestral auditions. I'm here to tell you, I don't think I made it through, you know, and I'm not, I wasn't somebody who was making finals in huge auditions, but I was making finals in, um, you know, San Antonio symphony. And I made finals in the Honolulu symphony thing. And I was making semis on a regular basis. And I, I didn't hit all the right notes every Mm -hmm. time, but I tried to make music as best I could and, Despite the mythology, that stuff seems to translate. I know not in every situation. I know it's true that there are some people out there who are like, Mr. Nerd, Mr. Nert, a... yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's it. Yeah, cushion. Thank you, Alexis.
0: Some other questions, not percussion related, but has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it?
1: Probably, but I don't know that I've seen it. Of course, I'm sure many of my students have got something. One of my students actually dressed as me for Halloween a few years ago, and it wasn't an impression. But Actually, I'm probably, I think I'm dressed exactly the way it would have been a button-down, sh- it would have been a button-down shirt. Yeah, With yeah. the, with the, the uh, sleeves. sleeves rolled up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, The front of my hair. Of course, I course, the podcast, hair. But, like, yeah, I've yeah. got sort of flippy hair. And, yeah, yeah. Like, it kind of looks a little bed heady and um, she had that going and the shirt was untucked into jeans. Yeah. That was, we, there were several students who dressed as professors that year for Halloween and they all kind of got together and we took pictures with them and it was pretty, it was, I was impressed. Like I wish they would have practiced more instead of like spending all that time dressing up like professors, but Like the quality, it's hard to argue with the quality of the results. Like I was like, yeah, that's, that's good. The student walked in and you're like, that's me. Yep. Fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) You got me. You, you, you do. It is true. You have amazing hair. I think that's, that's, well, you know, I work, I wake up two hours early every morning and just, you know, get the duct tape and the molding cream and Mm -hmm. bailing wire and the, you know, you work hard and it pays off. I yep, yeah, obviously. I don't have to explain that to you, do I?
0: You do not, because we quit. all
1: have we all have beautiful hair in the podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, and some of us that hair has left the scene twenty to twenty five years ago. So, yeah,
1: <laughs> it lives on in our memory.
0: Yes, it does, and in pictures that are shocking sometimes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was your?
1: Growing up, what was your worst job? I was a janitor at a high school for a summer. Wow. And my first day for eight hours, I scraped gum off the bottoms of desks. Oh! And that wasn't even the worst part of the job. The worst part of the job was the boss was this crazy figure... His name was Lou and he was built like a Mack truck bulldog and he was big and bald and he had thick sausagey fingers and he had a junior high level education. And it just, he was, it was just, he ran this little sort of fiefdom of uh, like the janitorial squad with an iron fist and just brutal psychological manipulation that, Oh, it was awful. Every morning, you would attend an unpaid meeting. You'd have to show up like 20 minutes before you clocked in and sit there and he would go through and he had this little notebook and this little pen and he had a list of stuff that was supposed to get done. And this room was supposed to get their carpet shampooed in this place. And he would just go through and ask people what they did yesterday and what they finished and how much more blah, blah, blah. And he would always get to me and I would tell him what I did. And he would, you know, he, it wasn't enough and it wasn't fast enough and it wasn't, whatever it was. And he would just, uh, he would come down on me. And, and then like people throughout the day, he would disappear. I would get my task and I'd be doing the thing. And other people who worked there would come by and be like, just do it. Don't do it like that. Just real quick, just go zip over it and go to the next thing. And I'm like, Lou explained to me how it's supposed to be done. And you got to go, you, pa- you pass over it three times. And the first time you use the suction and the second time you get the water in all this like carpet shampooing nonsense." And they were like, Nobody does it like that. And if you do it like that, you're not going to finish. And then he's going to yell at you. And I just never figured out that you just got to fake it. Sometimes (laughs) you just got (laughs) to, in order to save your own psychology, sometimes you just got to like fake it. So that was awful. I'd had, I've had physically worse jobs than that, but Mm -hmm. the mental torture of working for an idiot, it's only happened a couple of times, but I had a lot of jobs as, you know, like a temp and, you know, in between when I was doing my dream job, I had a lot of like non dream jobs as long as it didn't matter what I was doing. If I was working with somebody smarter than me, then that's great. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll learn from this person. But if somebody who's stupid is bossing me around, it's, it's the worst. Yeah. That was the worst.
0: Uh,
1: What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? I remember this. Qu- I've, I, I knew this was coming Yeah, yeah. and I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to answer this question in a weird way. That's maybe like different than how you asked it. I'm going to, I'm going to give you at least one example of a movie that I think is awesome that everyone else thinks is bad. Okay. And then I'm going to give you an example of a movie that I think is bad that everyone else thinks is awesome. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Because if all you want is a good movie and a bad movie, you can go on Rotten Tomatoes and look these things of course, up. sure. People. Yeah. What am it's I doing? your opinion. I'm, I want to know
0: your opinion, Matt.
1: Okay. In my opinion, yes. the much maligned Joe versus the volcano <laughs> yeah. is a fantastic movie. <laughs> and I, it, it hurts my heart sometimes when I see, you know, clips of Tom Hanks talking about his movie career and he mentions the, the dark times when people are like, well, you know, you've made so many great movies. And he, he's like, yeah, but I made some real stinkers too. And he puts Joe versus the Volcano sometimes on that list when he talks about movies he's not proud of. And he should be proud of that movie because it's fantastic and it's worth repeated viewings. And yeah, I don't know where it's at. If it's, you know, it's probably three bucks on Amazon Prime, but sure. Joe versus the Volcano.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. I agree. It is a good one. And, and yeah, like let's like... No, he would see this here's the thing. I think he, he loves Turner and Hooch, which is good, but but he's like he uses that because he's like he had to, he had to act next to a dog.
1: Like that was part of their the, the Well in the lesson he learned, he was like, if you're gonna have a movie like that that features a dog, don't a spoiler alert if you haven't seen Turner and Hooch, you had your chance to find, find out. <laughs> From, like, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling the ending of Turner and Hooch. But he's like, Don't kill the dog at the end. You can't have the dog die. What's wrong with you? We could have had so many sequels and sold so many hooch dolls or whatever. Yeah. Like, don't kill the dog. Yeah. Now, what's the other? Oh, um, there's uh, two off the top of my head. One is Love Actually, which a lot of people adore that movie. Uh And I just, maybe I'll go back and try it again. I don't know. But I just remember seeing it and thinking this was... You know, this was a room full of executives who were like, okay, we're going to get a bunch of famous British actors mm-hmm. and we'll just have a bunch of preposterous but kind of funny mm-hmm. uh, romantic scenarios and we'll just throw it all together and everybody's going to love it because, you know, the m- movie loving uh, community, they're a bunch of schmoopy schmucks and they're going to eat this stuff up with a spoon.
2: Yeah,
1: right. And I feel like, it, and some of the people I love most in this world. Think that's a great movie, yeah. And I don't know how to reconcile that thing because I love and respect those people, right. and that movie is a gigantic steaming pile of shit. And I don't know, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> okay, that was one. All right, what was the other one? Oh, and then I, I, I want to go back and see it again, but Unforgiven. Oh, Clint, yeah. I saw Unforgiven in the theater. I was <laughs> really looking forward to it. I was like, this is great. Yeah. Clint Eastwood was a big part of you know my childhood of the. You know, he's the big tough guy and he's the cowboy and the cop with the dirty Harry and all this stuff. And yeah. th- this was going to be his like sort of uh, sensitive Western and, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody was and he directed it and he, you know, he got the script and waited like whatever, 20 years until he was old and craggly enough mm-hmm. uh, to play the lead, which is hilarious because, you know, it's 30 years later and he's still old and craggly and course, running yeah. around yeah. playing the lead in movies. But anyway, it came out and I didn't like it and everybody else loved it. And I was like, maybe I missed something. And I went back to the theater. Clint Eastwood got my ticket money twice.
0: For Unforgiven?
1: For Unforgiven. I went back and I was like, I'm going to see if I see what everyone else sees in this movie. And I didn't. (laughs) And I, I don't know what to, I don't know how to reconcile that either.
0: Yeah. I, I actually have seen this relatively recently again, like same thing. I had seen it when it, when it sometime when it first came out and I, I liked it. It's, Coming to it at an older age, I think it, it you'll it'll work a little better. And it, it it's more it's like I, I, I would say like slightly more progressive because it, there's a lot about the women's story. I, I think that's what's different about it. Right. Versus a lot
1: of the other. I mean, I think thematically it was it was great and it was ahead of its time and it was really cool. Yeah. Um, I just remember just sort of tonally, I thought sometimes it was funny by accident and then it would switch to being almost like a romance and then it was yes. like an action movie. And am I rooting for these people to shoot each other? I can't figure out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just, it didn't connect with me and I totally expected it to. So I don't I don't yeah. know what's wrong with me. I accept that it may be, that I may be the problem in that equation and that's fine. Sure.
0: That happens sometimes. I, I understand. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: All right. What's a favorite book? There's a couple that I go back and it's been a while, but I, I've read several times. You know, I read when I was a young person, I went back. Um, Franny and Zoe oh, okay. was one Yeah, catch 22 was one lonesome dove was one, uh, another Joseph Heller, uh, God knows. Was I, know one. One. I read, you know, at some point I went on a kick and read everything Joseph Heller wrote you know, I did this with a lot of, like we probably all did when I was young, I, I got into an author and I would read, you know, John Irving, I would read everything. he oh, wrote. Sure mm-hmm. Um, oh God, who was the guy who was like another roadside attraction and, um, even cowgirls get the blues. Who was, I, I can't, I'm blanking on the author's name, but it was, it was a bunch of like sort of cool, quirky, fun women forward, uh, Interesting novels. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, that's going to bug me. So,
0: uh, on a couple of those. Lonesome Dove is one that I I just have to read because I've been told by too many people that it's incredible. I like, read it because really my like, favorite, like, like they've given me the how have you not read this yet? Is that yeah. is that your are you in that camp?
1: Yeah, and I the only I read it because my favorite high school English teacher was like I think this might be the great American novel. Mm. And not everybody knows it, but he's like, that's what I think. And so I went and read it and loved it. And I probably read it three times. Uh, there's another one that people sort of read in college and it's like a thousand pages long. I'm having super memory blank, but, uh, um, Oh, infinite jest. Oh yeah. Okay. That's, I was kind of, I was, was sure. Everything. Yeah. yeah. I read that yes. more than once. And oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, but you miss so much. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like, I I could not speak intelligently about that book. I think I've read it three times and I cannot, you know, there's tons of stuff where people who really know it are like, well, what about And I'm like, I don't even remember that. I don't know. I've never heard of that character in my whole life. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm. I don't have great retention. I guess so. I have to read stuff over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I was smarter, I just would have read it the one time. Yeah, yeah. But it, I, I loved that book. But I'm probably not going to read it a fourth time. I mean, that's a that's kind of a slog. I, I, just happened to pick it up and start rereading it for the third time when David Foster Wallace died. Mm. Oh, sure. So I was like, I'm gonna. This is going to be my tribute to David Foster Wallace. So I'm gonna finish this off. Yeah. So oh, it's uh, Tom Robbins. Tom Robbins. Thank you.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I read everything, you know, he wrote, and that's perfect for a 19, 20 year old to Mm. go into. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, worth revisiting now, but yeah, I did that with Joseph Heller and God knows was after I read catch 22, I, I read, um, you know, something happened and Mm. I don't know. I tried to suck down everything I could.
0: Catch 22. That was the first time I read that. I was like, I don't, this is unbelievable. I don't know how. If, that was when my wife was like, you haven't read this
1: yet. You need to
0: read this tomorrow. Like you need to start immediately.
1: <laughs> yeah. Richard Powers was another author that I went through and that was Operation Wandering Soul and the Goldbug Variations. Those were two like powerful Prisoner's Dilemma. I don't know. I read a lot more really pretty high quality fiction when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Sure. And now it's either history or like cheesy detective novels. Oh, okay, cool. I've kind of degraded into those two things. I don't, I don't know why that has happened, but <laughs> it has happened. I'm not as adventurous with my reading choices as I used to be. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I well, on a related note, if you were to meet someone and they
0: say, and you've never met them before and they say, I like blank and it's something obscure and you would immediately say, all right, we're good. What's that
1: for you? Some oh, like something obscure, pop like pop kind of. Oh, got it. Like if they quoted The Big Lebowski or something, I'd be yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. We are now connected. Actually, it happened once where somebody quoted Joe Versus the Volcano to me. Oh, nice! And I was like, do you have the other half of this amulet? <laughs> um, but what? Yeah, I don't know out. what. But you know how, I mean, like if somebody, if a non, I'll tell you what would be if a Mm non-percussionist mentions something like pretty specific to our, you know, like I met somebody who actually was a childhood friend of my wife's who's had a fascinating life. She was a professional boxer. She like fought in Madison Square Garden. She's a writer and she's been, you know, published by like a bunch of like New York Times and New Yorker and stuff like that. And she's, and she knew who so percussion was. Oh, nice. And I was like, what kind of normal person knows about so Percussion?" she's not a professional musician. Yeah. Um, uh, her husband is a jazz pianist. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, like what does she do listening to so percussion? I thought that was just a bunch of composers and new music percussion nerds. Right. I didn't realize how wide reaching yeah. their influence was. Um, So that you know, anytime somebody's like, "Oh yeah, uh, stockhausen," and it's like an accountant who's coming up and talking to me about this stuff, I'm like, "Oh, yeah, hey, we're in."
0: (laughs) That's awesome. When you go back to uh, to (laughs) Illinois, visit family. What's the food you have to just get? Like you, like you're, you're going there, you're driving there now, I would imagine. And you're like, we are stopping here before I see anyone. Where's that?
1: Yeah. What do, I don't know if I have that necessarily. And I have that more like where I went to school. So for instance, if I go to Cincinnati, there's an Indian place called Ambar, Mm. um, that we're, we're getting, (laughs) we're getting Ambar or the ice cream place, um, called graters. I'm getting uh chocolate ice cream with chocolate chips in it. The chocolate chips are the size of matchbox cars and graters <laughs> double chocolate chip ice cream oh, to be clear. Awesome. Um, you know, and if I go to Houston, then I got to get a uh, brisket at good company, barbecue um, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I grew up again. I mean, there's Chicago, but you know, I left Illinois when I was 17 I didn't have any money to eat anything good in Chicago. Like I ate at Bennigan's or something or McDonald's when I was there for Chicago Youth Symphony rehearsals. Um, And then, uh, you know, I've since come back to Crystal Lake, but it's not a super great restaurant town. It's more like my mom's spaghetti. That's what I want when I'm coming back through town. Like, you know what I want, make it, stick it in the fridge. I'm ready.
0: Yeah,
1: that's awesome. All
0: right, a couple more strangest, funniest, or most bizarre
1: performance moment that involves you. Oh, I had, maybe I had a couple when I was um, in the Northern Kentucky Symphony Orchestra, which is now the Kentucky Symphony Orchestra, but it's right, if you're in Cincinnati, it's right over the river in Kentucky. And um, it was kind of a, I'm sure it's more of a venerable institution Mm
2: -hmm.
1: now, but in the 90s, it was a little bit scrappy and community based, and they were trying to make something bigger out of it. And Mm -hmm. so their reach sometimes... What is the, the reach outpace their grasp or whatever it was. So like one time we did, we did 1812 mm-hmm. and we did it, you know, in some auditorium somewhere and, you know, they've got the like, they did the whole thing with the, you know, they, with the chorus and there's all these, it, they got a high school, you know, merged a couple of maybe uh high school choirs. And so there's all these like girls in their prom gowns or whatever on these risers. And the percussion section is kind of behind them. And, um, the, cannons were members of like the uh the local gun club uh-huh. who had shotguns and they were firing blanks into empty barrels just off stage
2: yeah, yeah
1: which is still really loud and the sort of smoke that you get from this turns out to be a little oppressive. <laughs> uh it's yeah oppressive and um <laughs> and so one of the girls in the chorus you know started feeling faint Mm -hmm. and like you know one of the percussion members was a volunteer fire and so like we're just sort of looking up and um you know sort of in front of us and off to the side a girl in the back row just gets woozy and then like sinks like a stone and the people around her sort of catch her but it's almost it's a slight domino effect and you know the several choristers are like halfway to crumbled and we basically help her off the back of the risers and into the percussion section. Meanwhile, somebody's beating the crap out of the chimes. There's <laughs> national guardsmen backstage with shotguns firing into, and there's smoke like starting to cover the entire stage. And somebody's like, "Get this girl a Snickers. I think she's diabetic." You know,
2: and leaving her in the percussion section.
1: And there's da, 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 da. somebody's, you know, the bass drum is yeah. like. That was a fun one. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs>
0: All right. All right. Last question, Matt. One piece of art, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual
1: art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? I listened to your podcast on occasion and somebody stole mine. Oh, interesting. I think it was, it might've been Brad Meyer. And I think you guys talked about it, but it was Michelangelo's David. Oh, it used yeah. to be. Although, so I saw it when I was, I don't know, backpacking. Uh, and traveling around with my friends as a 21 year old college kid, you go to Florence, you go to this museum, yeah. Michelangelo yeah. David is there, it's much bigger than you ever thought yes. it was, and it's just absolutely stunning. Yeah. And I could have looked at this thing all day. Yeah. And it was a really beautiful experience for me. And so the next time I was in Florence was in 2018 on my honeymoon. Nice. My wife had planned this fantastic two week trip through Italy. It was amazing. And at some point we were in Florence and I realized that we were like right down the street from Michelangelo's David. And I think we had talked about it. And she said, I looked into it, but she was like, if we don't have reservations, like tomorrow morning is the only time we could do it. And it's like the busiest day of the week to do it. You know, you look it up online and people are talking about being in line for like, you know, two hours or more to go see this thing. and. She was like, I, I did look into it because she knew that it was something I was interested in, you know, and we just kind of decided, okay, we're not going to do it. And so we went to sleep and the next morning I woke up and I was still thinking about it. And I was like, I, I really want to, I know it's kind of a little bit of a hitch in our schedule. What if we get there like first thing and try and get online? And she was like, okay, to her credit, she was a little bit under the weather, which I didn't realize she didn't want to complain to me, you know? Yeah. And we get online and it's one hour and it's two hours and it's three hours. And she is like miserable and having to stand there and it's raining and we're outside. And it looked like the line was going and then it wasn't going. And so by the time we get in to go see Michelangelo's David, we are like barely on speaking terms. Yeah. <laughs> she is so pissed off because yeah. it was the one, you know, she she architected this whole beautiful yeah. I have to hand it to her. I mean, I could go through every city we went through, and it was just an amazing trip she set up. She did everything. And the one thing I stuck my nose in, I was like, wait, can we do this one thing? It yeah. was a complete disaster mm-hmm. to see one statue for 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And like everybody was just like, you know, pissed off. So now that is my emotional attachment to Michelangelo's David. So I think I'm going to have to go back a third time at some point either by myself or with reservations, you know, like way ahead of time so yeah. we can work this out. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> David, awesome. I you believe the hype. It's so like, good. Mona Lisa, I can take her leave. I've read the, you know, I read a biography of Leonardo da Vinci. I know now what I'm supposed to know about how amazing it's, yeah. it is, but I saw it and it's, it's fine. David was a, a stunner. It's a mind-blowing,
0: yeah. That's awesome all right Matt I've kept you for almost three hours thank you so much this has been oh my gosh I hope you don't have like a lot like you didn't miss like seven meetings hopes so.
1: um, there's probably a student sitting outside my door gotcha. um but, but this was be all right okay Pete I really appreciate it um Matt I, I had a great time and I I I can't tell you enough, I really like I I honestly like the podcast and I would not necessarily gravitate towards a percussion related podcast. That does not automatically mean that that's going to be something I like, but I, I like what you've put together. And I think it's, I think it's really great that you're doing this and it's going to be, it's an important resource and it's a a really cool thing that you've done. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And you can edit that out if it makes you embarrassed. Or I'm,
0: I'm just going to put that in, in segments just throughout. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. It'll
1: be put good. it in other people's podcasts. Oh yeah, know, for sure. To, yeah. yeah, and I'll, yeah, put partic- it in.
0: <laughs> yes, that'd be good. Such a great time with Matt these past two weeks. I so appreciate his stories and good cheer, and all of the incredible comments he threw my way about the show. So nice to hear. Best wishes to Matt in the future, and I look forward to chatting with him again soon, hopefully in person. This week's rave is the annual Roots & Blues Music Festival held this past weekend at Stevens Lake Park just off of downtown in Columbia, Missouri. I've talked about this festival before in the rave segment because it's where the city of Columbia brings in its biggest major acts in music throughout the year. I should mention, though, that this is the non-country acts. There are major country acts that play at Mizzou Arena during the year as well. But this year's festival had some pretty great headliners, and I'll talk about them in order of appearance. But before I get to those, there's one non-rave I have to make about this weekend, which is the drought conditions that were in town. It had honestly barely rained for much of the summer and early fall And the park was a complete and total dust bowl. So much so, in fact, that I know of folks who intended, who just inhaled way too much dust and had to take some time off from work because they were a little bit sick. That's not the best. But enough about that. Let's talk about the music. Friday night, the only act I was able to catch was The Closer, but it was a group I'd been up for seeing for some time, Wilco. I've been a fan since buying the heavily regarded 2002 album, Yankee Foxtrot Hotel, and they were quite good. I wasn't as big of a fan of their newer work, but they did do almost half of the Yankee Foxtrot Hotel album, and it was pretty cool to see them recreate the sound of that album live. In particular, the opener, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. I definitely caught folk elements in there, along with heavy distortion That you'd see from a Sonic Youth concert. And lots of other styles in between. They were good and, to be honest, just okay at times. But it was really good to see them live. Next up on Saturday was Tank and the Bangas. Last year I got to catch only about 20 minutes of their set. But this time it was the entire thing and it was tremendous. The band is super exciting, plays really well together, has lots of soloists taking on those roles throughout. And lead singer Tariana Tank Ball is both an incredibly gifted singer, lyricist, and rapper. The whole thing was a party, and their vibe was wonderful. It was so good. After that was Shaka Khan. This was the artist I was most excited to see, and she definitely did not disappoint. Her voice... Even in her late 60s, it's still really strong and has all the range it ever did. She came on and meant business right away, had some great banter with the audience, and brought with her the tightest, best backing band I've heard in a long time. I didn't recognize the names of the folks playing with her, but her backup singers, drummer Munyungo Jackson, bassist and band leader Melvin Davis and particularly guitarist Rob Bacon, were all incredible. And the set was really solid. Bacon broke out the vocoder for a guitar and vocal solo that led right into the opening riffs of Tell Me Something Good. That was incredible. And after a break where the band soloed for a while, Shaka Khan finished with likely her three biggest hits. I Feel For You, I'm Every Woman, and Ain't Nobody. It was so good. Oh, my gosh. And that led right into the Saturday night headliner, John Baptiste. And you knew this was going to be good from the start. John and his band are among the freest musicians I've ever seen in a pop setting. And John's ability to have access to and play literally every style of music at all times seems unparalleled. In one particular moment... And this felt directly out of the Prince canon. During one of his songs, he took one line of that song and transferred it directly into a full arrangement of the Ray Charles classic, Nighttime is the Right Time. And then after a bit of that, went back into his own song. It all felt like a religious experience, and we were all glad to have witnessed it. And the closer on Sunday was Bleacher's. A band that I feel like I've heard a ton about, but had never really gotten to hear much of before seeing them live that night. I didn't know what to expect, but what I didn't expect was that I would both like them so much as a group and that their style and sound are so completely and totally indebted to Bruce Springsteen. This makes sense when you realize that band leader Jack Antonoff is from New Jersey He employs tenor saxophone in the ensemble and does a lot of the same audience participation that Bruce does. But beyond that, he has a really strong connection that he builds throughout the show with the crowd. They were super pumped, and he fed off of it, and it was a really good show to close what was a great weekend of music. So there it is, folks. Go see live music, particularly if it's in your town. And that's the show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at petezambito.com Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at petezambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com and I'll catch you next time. Until then.